Hello and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work and how scientists are studying them. In episode 13, we looked at the neuroscience of ageing and asked what changes happen in our brains as we get older. And it turns out there are a lot. Between losing brain volume, changes to signalling systems that affect cognitive function and the thinning of the outer thinking layer of the brain, the cortex, there's a lot to adjust to as we age. But although getting older is inevitable, what if brain ageing wasn't? I'm June Scott, and I live in Oakbrook, Illinois, and tomorrow's my 92nd birthday. I feel very lucky to be here. I feel every birthday is a gift not afforded to everyone, um, so I'm going to celebrate all year. <laughs> June is what's called a super-ager. Now, there are a few different definitions, depending on which scientist you speak to, but Broadly, it's someone who's retained remarkable cognitive abilities well into older age. I try to get my, you know, eight hours sleep that they recommend. <laughs> and I get up and usually do my stretching exercises at my age. I'll usually walk a couple of two or three miles. Used to do more, but I'm slower and don't go as far, but I'm still moving. And then I'll do yoga. Pilates and, you know, maybe the rest of the day I will be volunteering for Buddy's Place, which we facilitate grief groups for families that have lost loved ones. I'm in an organization called Grant Impact 100, where we analyze different charities in Chicago that are making a difference and give them grants of $100,000. And I'm in many book clubs. I like to entertain. I invite people for tea, for coffee, to sit on my deck. <laughs> you know, I really, I call it a happy busy. And it seems like June has always been a happy busy. After raising three kids, she trained as a teacher at the age of 40 and ended up working as an elementary school teacher and counsellor for another 40 years. I'm still in touch with many of my students. And as the Penquin lady at my school... That's another story. I have Penquin parties for my students of all the different classes. You know, they're engineers, doctors, lawyers, you know, have families of careers. And I would have a Penquin party and have all these Penquin things, cake, cookies, appetizers, and have them over. So I think, you know, just staying in touch and seeing what these wonderful young people are doing has really been a gift to me. You're going to have to tell me about the penguins then. How, how did you become a penguin lady? Well, it was interesting. My sister-in-law sent me a skirt and a t-shirt with penguins. And a teacher in the fall is always looking for a theme. So I thought, why not pep in your step, pride in your stride, put penguins around my room. And it really took, and the children loved it. And we could teach everything, math, reading, social studies, history, geology, and such. So I did, and I became the Penquin Lady. June still lives in the house she and her late husband built 56 years ago. 
And her brain is of great interest to scientists like Professor Emily Vygalski at Northwestern University. As a medical community, we've gotten good at extending the lifespan. Um, so that's one of the major advancements in over the centuries that has been quite remarkable, is that the average life expectancy has gone into the 70s and 80s, um, and that's been a, a milestone shift. However, as that has happened, as our lifespan has extended, our health span hasn't usually kept up. And so there's this imbalance between lifespan and health span. So superagers are individuals who are over age 80, who have memory performance at least as good as individuals in their 50s and 60s. And this is a term that I actually operationalized here in my research and now is being used across the world in, in some cases. In some instances, there's been slightly slight variations on the definition, but that definition is really important for saying, okay, at over age 80, you're at really heightened risk for Alzheimer's dementia. You're at really heightened risk for all kinds of things going wrong. And the ability to maintain memory performance that's at least as good as 50 to 60-year-olds is really remarkable. Emily spends a lot of her time running studies on superagers like June, who first heard about the project through a friend. And so I thought, OK, let's find out about it. So I did call the number. And of course, they spend 45 minutes asking you about your health and checking your memory, giving you lists of words to remember, stories to remember, numbers backwards and forwards, listing all the words with S. And so I've been in it about 10 or 12 years. And each year they test us to see. I don't think I can flunk out. And have you met any other super agers through being in the study? You know what? Yes. And that was exciting. Before the pandemic, they had several receptions where we met each other. And just in the last uh, month, they invited about five of us to come in to be videotaped. And so I met four or five other ones and we had more fun together because I think we all have that energy of, you know, let's keep going. <laughs> and so in that vein, then, do you feel different at all from some of your peers? that aren't super ages. Well, you know what? I'm saddened when I meet with some of my friends who are not as able to be as active and outgoing as I am. And also, you know, meeting with some friends that I can see their dementia's beginning. So that's really very sad. And that's really the crux of Emily's research on super ages. By studying those who have aged well, she hopes to understand how we can better prevent dementia. So dementia is a general term to denote when there's a change in someone's thinking ability. And that change is so severe that it's interfering with one's activities of daily living. So your ability to carry out your daily life, it's somehow interfering. And there are some forms of dementia that occur that are reversible. So they may be due to a hormonal Im imbalance or um, something that could be modified. And once addressed, the individual would go back to normal, so to speak. In other instances, when there's a progressive neurodegenerative dementia, that's the category where Alzheimer's dementia falls in. That means that there's actually a pathologic process that's attacking the brain. So there's bad proteins that are misbehaving and they're causing a lot of grief in the brain. And when this occurs in Alzheimer's dementia, it tends to impact the memory regions. It's attacking the memory parts of the brain first. And because those memory regions are attacked first, those are the symptoms that 
emerge first. And then over time, that disease continues to move throughout the brain and then wreak more havoc. So then it affects attention or executive functions or other aspects of thinking. That's really interesting because I think you definitely just hear about Alzheimer's as a memory problem. You don't really think of it as a disease that's spreading through the brain like that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a progressive disease so that it's not just a single thing that has happened, but there are going to continue to be changes over time. And that's what's made part of identifying treatments really complex as well is that it's actually a multitude of complexities occurring at the same time. So in the aphasic form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia, the disease, those bad proteins are attacking the language regions of the brain. So those are the initial symptoms that someone sees, and they're very selective for attacking those language regions initially. And then again, the disease spreads over time. And are we all equally at risk of developing these types of dementia, or is there variability in the population? So there's quite a bit of variability in the risk for developing different dementias. And one is in the APOE gene. Everyone has a pair get one copy from mom, one copy from dad, and they come in three flavors, two, three, and four. So each individual is either two, 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 three, three, four, et cetera. If you have at least one of the four copy, it increases your risk for Alzheimer's dementia. It does not guarantee that you would get Alzheimer's dementia, but it does increase your risk. If you have two copies, it's going to increase your risk even more. There are autosomal dominant forms of Alzheimer's disease, and that's when there's uh, genetic changes that are actually linked directly with the disease. And then there's a myriad of other lifestyle factors that can increase one's risk. So um, having diabetes, um, challenges with cardiovascular health, these kinds of things. So one way to study Alzheimer's disease is to say, gosh, what's going wrong? And how do we try to reverse or fix all of those things that have gone awry? Another perspective is to say, how did some people avoid this? Despite having the largest risk factors potentially, but they somehow have been able to be not only on a normal path, but a super normal or exceptional path of aging. So it, it gives us a different lens. We need lots of approaches to think about how to tackle Alzheimer's dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Emily's work looks at super ages from multiple angles, and June has enjoyed being a part of the various studies. I'm in two. I'm in the core study and the super ages study. Each one tests me, you know, differently or on different times. And they do all those different tests about the memory, listing words, remembering 16 words, number problems. Um, and then when you go in, there might be some, you know, dexterity, standing up, can you get out of a chair without putting your hands down? Can they push you over? And they also ask a lot of social questions how we're feeling, how independent we are, are we positive, are we discouraged? They also do an MRI of our brain. So, when scientists do take a peek into the brains of superagers like June, what do they see? Yeah, so this is one of the first experiments we did was we said, okay, we have these 80-year-olds and they have memory performance that's at least as good as 50 to 60-year-olds. So what do their brains look more like? They're chronologically matched peers, their 80 plus year old peers, or their cognitively similar peers, the 50 to 60 year olds. And when we did that comparison, first of all, what we see is when we compare average agers, average 80 plus year olds to average 50 to 60 year olds, we see that shrinkage in the brain that is so common with aging. And 
Then when we do that same comparison of the 80-year-olds with the 50 to 60-year-olds, we saw something really remarkable. We saw no significant thinning of that outer layer of the brain, the cortex, that tells us a little bit about the integrity of the brain. And we saw something even more remarkable in something called the anterior cingulate of the superagers, in that that anterior cingulate was thicker in the superagers than even in the 50 to 60-year-olds. The anterior cingulate is a region deep in the brain that's thought to be important for attention, and attention supports memory. So we think that this region may be a contributor to the superaging phenotype and their ability to maintain good memory. And now we are able to line up other studies to better investigate, okay, cellularly and molecularly, what's happening here that might be promoting the superaging phenotype or trajectory. That's really interesting. That almost sounds like you could take a bunch of 50-year-olds now and see whether they're likely to be superagers by the size of their anterior cingulate. <laughs> yes, yes, you've got you've got the word. Now, in our last episode, Professor Alexandra Tarutoglu at Harvard Medical School explained that having a healthy diet, doing enough exercise and remaining social can help protect our brains as we age. So I wanted to know, are there any common features in lifestyle or genes or, I don't know, where people are living, type of location and environment that you see for super ages? Yes. So in the super aging study, one of the unique things that we do is we don't just focus on one aspect of science. So we're not just interested in the cellular aspects of super aging. We're actually interested in what can we see in brain structure? What can we see under the microscope? We ask superagers to donate their brain eventually at the time of death, mm. which is an incredible gift that they provide. What genetic factors might be playing a role? We have newer studies that are looking at inflammatory markers, immunologic markers. The superaging study itself has been going on now for nearly 15 years. And about two years ago, we had the opportunity to expand. So we're enrolling across five sites in the US and Canada. So we can start to dig into those regional questions, um, changes that might be present by sex or race or ethnicity, um, kind of different variations, and we'll be digging into each of those aspects. We are also interested in how does family history play a role? How does your lifestyle factors, psychosocial factors, education? And so some of the initial observations that we've seen are that superagers tend to endorse strong relationships with others. This fits really well with other scientific literature emphasizing the importance of connection and avoiding social isolation and loneliness. So we know there's extreme negative consequences to social isolation and loneliness, and that staying connected can be important. But to see that the superagers have endorsed even stronger connections is a place for now inquiry. And so we're following this up. The initial study was based on kind of self-report data, and now the superagers are invited to participate in wear, wearable sensors so that we can look at interactions that they have and better understand their movement in space and their activities and their social engagement. Um, and so this is an, a new feature to the study that we're really excited about. And it's true that June certainly seems to have had bucket loads of socialising. Remember the penguin parties? You know what? I enjoy people. In fact, I, you know, I spend more time with my younger friends than I do some of my older ones because some aren't as active. I do visit with them and such. But I've always enjoyed people. But what about other lifestyle factors? 
we see that from a diet and exercise standpoint, that it's quite variable. We certainly have super agers who are very active or maybe leading exercise classes, whereas others say, I've never exercised. I don't plan on starting to exercise. That's not really ever been my strong suit. And so it's all of these kind of gene environment interactions where some individuals may have been able to tolerate being less active, having more hamburgers and French fries, um, but we'll be able to dig into some of these factors. We've done some initial genetic studies and identified some rare variants associated with super aging. I think these deserve replication. And as our cohorts are getting bigger, we'll be primed to do this work. So I think we're in early days there. One thing that we've seen is that when we look at risk factor scores for Alzheimer's disease, superagers do not have significantly lower risk than their cognitively average peers. Mm-hmm. So it's not that these individuals just represent extreme lower low risk for Alzheimer's disease. They seem to be similar. One way to interpret is that there's probably a set of protective factors that are out there as well. And so if we just look at risk, we're only seeing one side of the coin or one part of the image. And then to see that full image, we need to think about what new and different protective factors might be out there that are supporting this phenotype. And perhaps one of those protective factors for June was remaining active. She mentioned her yoga and Pilates and walking earlier, but she's always loved to travel too. I've been to all seven continents by the time I was 70, all the states when I was growing up, and, you know, raising our family, and we'd take all our children to the national parks. You'd ask what was my favorite experience in my travel, and one of my favorites was sitting on the pack ice when Emperor Penguins came up to peck my boots and my camera. So the Penguin lady could die and go to heaven. (laughs) Not just yet, June, because Emily believes even just spreading the news about superages could make a difference long term. I think superagers offer an opportunity for changing expectations around aging. So if your expectation is, oh, my only path is to get old and forget my keys and to not be able to do X, Y, and Z, then you kind of live into that. If you see more examples of people thriving and doing amazing things, I think that gives an opportunity to set new expectations. And after 92 years, June has some advice for any wannabe super-agers that might be listening. Well, you know what? My feeling is, obviously, keep moving, be curious, be optimistic, uh, realize that life is a journey. You're going to hit bumps and losses and disappointments, but, you know, pick yourself up again as many times as you have to. So, no, I'm going to keep going as long as I can. Thanks so much to June Scott and Emily Rogalski for speaking to me for this episode. Join us in two weeks' time where we'll be exploring the neuroscience of death and consciousness. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by me, Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.